Welcome to Women Who Move Nations, the public transport podcast, where we interview our industry's top female executives from Australia, New Zealand, and around the world. I'm Michelle Batsis, your host and the Chief Executive Officer of the Public Transport Association, Australia, New Zealand. We're raising the voices of women for everyone who works in public transport and mobility, and particularly for any of our listeners who are early in their transport careers and looking for inspiration. Each of our guests shares her views on the future of public transport and provides insights into their career journeys. Make sure you follow Women Who Move Nations on your favorite podcast platform and rate the show to help more people find us. You can also join our community on LinkedIn by searching Public Transport Association Australia New Zealand. We're also on Twitter at PTAANZ underscore or visit us at www.ptaanz.org. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of Women Who Move Nations, the public transport podcast. I'm your host, Michelle Batsis, and today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by one of the most senior women working in transport in Australia, Dr. Gillian Miles. Jill is the Chief Executive Officer of the National Transport Commission. Jill, thank you so much for being here with us. I'm really looking forward to interviewing you today and our discussion. Hi, Michelle. So, Jill, we're going to get stuck straight into the questions. I know you've had over 30 years experience as a senior executive in the public sector at national, state and local government levels. And a lot of your roles have been in transport and community focused services. You've advised on major regulation, policy and strategy reforms and how we fund and deliver key infrastructure and services for our communities, which is just so important. So I'm really looking forward to hearing more about your incredible career. But firstly, I wanted to ask you, can you tell us about your current role as Chief Executive Officer of the National Transport Commission, which is commonly known as the NTC? And for our listeners who might not be so familiar with your organisation, what does the NTC do and what are your top priorities as head of that agency? The National Transport Commission exists because Australia is a federation and there are mutual accountabilities in various jurisdictions across the country. So the National Transport Commission is tasked with providing reform solutions for land transport in this country to achieve uh, greater productivity and improve safety. So what we actually do is we have a program of work focused around a couple of key areas, and I can talk about some of those a little more, but we basically work with the jurisdictions and the Commonwealth and often in the industry who's involved in the regulatory work um, to provide advice to ministers on legal frameworks, reform options and regulatory uh, systems for the administration of the transport system in Australia. Most of the work is talking to people and having good in-depth policy options to put on the table and work through with people. Uh, interestingly, during COVID, we've seen some of the, you know, federation in action, and that's exactly why the NTC exists. It's an unusual organisation. It's the only type we have in the country. Um, it's a small organisation. We have 40 people, but we have 40 really smart people who uh, work on various uh, topics uh, in the, the time they spend at the NTC. 
priorities for myself and the organisation. There's obviously priorities in the work program at the moment, like we've got to uh, put in place a regulatory framework for automated vehicles in Australia. Really a big piece of work to make sure that there is the opportunity for industry to invest in the whole country. There's a National Rail Action Plan, which has got three components to it, all supported heavily by ministers wanting to have a look at how we can uh, increase the productivity of the rail system. So we're doing some work on skills as well as some work on standards and trying to get people together a bit more. The Heavy Vehicle National Law is a piece of work we've been working on for some years now. There is a law. This is a rewrite of an existing law. One thing um, to say about working on um, new things during COVID is that it's pretty difficult to get people around the table uh, when you're trying to get people to agree on stuff. You can do plenty on Zoom, but the work's been interesting over the past two years trying to navigate that space. So my priorities are to get that program delivered to the highest calibre that it can, but also a heavy focus on internal, uh, ensuring that the NTC has an organisation that is people who are confident, influential and contributing uh, often to things broader than the specific remit of the NTC. Jill, thanks for sharing that. There's something that you talked about that really struck me, that it's about the people you work with. And my own reflection, working in transport, it is about the people you work with and the work we're doing for the people. And I think that's so important. On the topic of people who work in transport, I know you're passionate about empowering other women in the transport sector. And it's something we share as it's one of the reasons that we started this podcast to profile women and inspire other women coming through the ranks. And I wanted to talk to you more about an initiative that I know that you've started with some other female leaders in Australia to launch the National Women in Transport Initiative. I'm keen to hear more about it. It's new and exciting. And I understand that you've secured federal government funding as well. Thanks, Michelle. I think it's exciting too. It's um, time for a big conversation uh, in the transport sector about its diversity and inclusion really goes beyond uh, gender only, but clearly women are keen to get into the industry. So I'll just explain to you maybe where it came from and why and then what we're trying to do. Everyone knows Australia is experiencing an infrastructure and transport investment boom. We need people to deliver that program, but we also need people to make sure that there is a system that can be operated efficiently as those pieces of infrastructure um, become live on the network. Our view was, if we're not ensuring that women are part of the transport industry and comfortable in it, we will have an economic problem as well as a social one. There are parts of the transport industry who are already experiencing skill shortages and the conversation about future skills in transport is an emerging one uh, that needs to account for a whole range of different skills than traditional transport skills. So if you just think about the transport sector, uh, it's got 530,000, so half a million Australians in the major sub-sectors of rail, road, sea and air and it contributes $40 billion to Australia's GDP. So it's not a small industry in this country. Currently, women make up 20% of the land transport sector workforce. 4.5% of transport CEOs are women, which is well below the employment share of 20% uh, that is experienced in other industries. 
the gender pay gap in the sector is higher than the national average, 15.9% compared to 13.9%. Transport sector is the third most dominated sector by employment behind construction and mining. And when you think about how much of the construction sector at the moment is constructing transport, we actually think that we've got a bigger issue than third most male dominated. It's probably second most male dominated, given that you know most people involved in construction at the moment are doing something with transport. So the reasons behind the underrepresentation in transport is pretty well understood. I think it applies to different sectors in different ways, but fairly consistent. There's a lack of workplace culture awareness and what uh, strategies you can put in place to ensure that a diverse range of people feel comfortable working with you. There's a perceived and actual gender bias and there's a lack of female role models and flexible work practices. So the National Women in Transport Network kind of came out of that data and one of the things that became very clear, Romilly um, Maju and I, Romilly's the CEO of Infrastructure Australia, we did a bit of a scan of all the women in transport activities that are happening across Australia and there are loads of them mostly targeted around young women coming up through the system so there's lots of mentoring lots of support lots of scholarships uh, lots of opportunity for women who are coming into transport to have the opportunity to see a career path and get the support they need through the system what we noticed really clearly is that there was no network and nothing at a national level where more senior women could spend time with each other offering support uh, to younger women but also to each other. So it was one very important part of it. The other important part was visibility. So we've had a motto the whole way through developing this program of work which is you can't be what you can't see. So the network itself at the moment is a really kind of loose arrangement you know and Rom and I get together with a bunch of other CEOs on a semi-regular basis and you know think about what we might be able to do collectively which we've got some plans going forward into this year but the Commonwealth Government provided some money for us to do stuff which is really really important fundamental pieces for the network to have some sustainability. One is this thing from conference organisers that they can't find women to speak at conferences. To help the conference industry, we decided to set up a speakers bureau, which documents, uh, it's going to be between 30 and 50 very senior women who we've unearthed across the transport sector, who are running things like ports and airports and government departments and agencies and uh, in consultancies. So there's lots of women around who are contributing to the, the transport revolution who will be on the Speakers Bureau. So the Speakers Bureau will be publicly available. The other things that we are very heavily into the planning of are making sure that we've got industry with us on this and working together. So Roads Australia and a couple of other agencies like the Contractors Association and the Australian Rail Association, those sorts of organisations, and I think you as well, Michelle, the UITP, are going to get involved in some of this. Hosting things together so that we're talking about whole of transport and we're kind of following the lead of where the transport sector's been going to move away from modal discussions and talk about uh, the whole system and how it works. So very, very uh, exciting and very important piece of work that's underway And I'm pretty sure you'll see 
stuff around the place pretty quickly because we've got a fantastic website um, that you can go and have a look at. At the moment, it'll be the Speakers Bureau, but it will end up being a place where people can post stuff uh, and we'll try and get out some data sets so people can track women's employment, um, pay, equity issues, those sorts of things. What a great initiative, Jill. And it's so impressive the work you're leading with Romilly Madhu and others. And I just want to say... I think it's absolutely dire that only 4.5% of the CEOs in transport are female. I'm in a privileged position where I get to go to a lot of events and I continue to be surrounded by males. And we know that there are females working in the industry, but you do have to go out of your way to uncover them. So it's fantastic you're setting up the National Speaker Bureau. And I also would just like to personally thank you for inviting me to participate as a speaker in that bureau. I mean, I think we need to have a view that we need 50-50 gender balance on panels, and we certainly have that view for our conferences and events. And it's so important to proactively facilitate that. I speak to people all the time who tell me, oh, we couldn't find a female to speak on this topic. And actually, there are females, and you just need to go looking for them sometimes. Mm, Thank you. And looking forward to heaps of contribution from women across the country. I think we've now got you know, at least longer than we can get to in terms of people who want to participate, which is absolutely fantastic. Jill, thanks for sharing those insights. I think our listeners will take a lot away from it, actually, because nearly every organisation is undergoing some sort of transformation. I wanted to shift our conversation, though, and I'd love to hear more about your professional journey. And we've already spoken a bit about your career in the transport sector. So I understand you have a PhD in business administration and you did your Masters of Letters in Cultural Theory, which I find fascinating and I'd love to hear more about. And you also did a degree in education, so it's such an interesting mix. And I wanted to ask you, how did your professional experience in education lead you to where you are today? That's a really interesting question because on the surface, you can't see business administration, cultural theory and the ability to teach art, media and English to young people is uh, (laughs) the way to contribute to our transport sector. But on reflection, you know, some of those things I did because I was interested in them. I love learning and I love writing essays and all that sort of stuff. But I think it's the critical analysis, the ability to develop critical analysis and one of the pieces of work that I had done throughout my career is kind of deconstruction and reconstruction theory, which sounds a bit highfalutin, but it's kind of looking at things in a way that says, how could this thing be different? How could it work better? What are the objectives you're trying to achieve and how might you think about it in a different way? So I think my critical analysis skills were developed through my educational background. And I think Having jobs where I've had to work with people because I haven't been a technical expert has actually given me a really good edge for leading reform and driving change. It's really important I've found that you don't come in anywhere with a fixed view. You come in with an open mind to learn and it's learning the content and learning the people. So I think that's the answer to the question about the education uh, piece. It's it's kind of interesting because I look at those things and go, I'm not quite sure why I did them or how I did them. But I think that's what they've helped me do is to is to be uh, critical and think at a systems level. So coming into transport in about the year 2001, 
I came into transport and knew nothing about how to build a road, how to look after a bridge, how to run a licensing system, all those sorts of things. But from the support of the chief executive at that time and the executive, I applied those other skills that I brought to the table and, you know, could see uh, different ways of thinking about the business. So the, the complexity a lot of the time is being in government organisations where in addition to complex business, you have constantly changing environment that is complex Success factors are sometimes opaque when you work in a bureaucracy, but you have very strongly skilled people and governments are usually about wanting to fix things and about reform. So it's kind of the place to be when you want to move mountains or move nations. That's how I kind of think about my professional experience. And the only other thing I could add is that each job you do, you learn a little bit more and you you have those moments where you go, uh-oh, I feel a bit perplexed, I feel a bit scared, I don't understand this, and what do I do now? And if you're still doing that, you know, that means you're, you're, you're learning both content and people and setting agendas, which is the thing I love about these complex jobs. So interesting, Jill, your reflections on that. And I can just hear you have so much experience in this space And I really appreciate you taking the time to share your advice and insights with our listeners. Something you just shared actually really leads me into my next question, which is about imposter syndrome. This issue comes up a lot and often in these podcast interviews, and it's a big challenge. And I would like to acknowledge it's not just women who experience it, but dear me, the number of senior females, let alone females coming up through the ranks that talk about imposter syndrome with me, makes me realise it's actually quite widespread. And I wanted to ask, what's your experience with it been and have you found ways to overcome it? Michelle, that's a really interesting question because to admit that you felt imposter syndrome is kind of uh, a weird thing to do. But mm. I agree with you. I think every everyone probably experiences it. My experience is that women experience it a lot and particularly when women are in non-traditional areas for, for women to be in. I mean, it's less now, but but certainly that feeling of, oh, my God, I have no idea, is inherent in the back of your head. So there's a couple of things, you know, that maybe I could share with you <laughs> that are kind of terrifying. So when I started at Vic Roads in 2001, I was responsible for the road network, its operations, its assets and the registration licensing system. I was 37 years old and I sat down with my executive team, which was the regional directors, and I looked around the table and there were 10 of these people and they were all older than my dad. And I kind of went, oh, oh dear. Oh, dear. <laughs> and I know nothing. I know nothing. So for me, the the, um, the how do you quieten that uh, voice in your head, there's two things I think that I've learned to do over the years. One is take that situation and just go, what am I good at that they're not good at? You know, you're there for a reason. What am I good at? Um, and I've talked earlier about some of the things that I'm good at. I'm actually really good at. Um, the other thing is, you know, people talk about the monkey on your shoulder, which is that slight chattering in your ear about, 
should I be here? They might find me out, you know, blah, blah, blah. I think I've learned to listen to the monkey and chat to the monkey about, yep, it feels like that, but that's a feeling as opposed to a reality a lot of the time. So they're the two things that that I have in my mind. One is why am I here? And it's different to why everybody else is here and can I focus on that? And also have a chat to the monkey and, you know, just let it feel what you've got to feel for a while and then keep moving on. The other really important thing I think for for women feeling um, like that is to lean in on other women. And that's the thing we're finding through you know, National Women in Transport, women will support other women. You need the right avenues, you need the right way to connect with people, which is why it's so important to make connection. But once you've got a few buddies around the table, you can actually, you know, utilise people's knowledge, you can get them to help you, you can help them, and you actually build, you know, some very, very strong networks pretty quickly. But you have to put up your hand, I think, and sometimes just share a bit that that it's feels a bit crap and you need a hand. So true. It is important to reach out to people you know and that network. Jill, thanks so much for sharing because I realise it is an important and personal reflection to share. And there's something else I hear a lot, and it's about women finding it hard to advocate for themselves, to put their hand up for that role or opportunity and being confident to pitch themselves for a more senior role. And I wanted to ask you, have you got any advice for how women can look to position themselves and how they can negotiate their salary because that's a tricky one because we know there's a pay gap. Yeah, it's a really tricky one and negotiating your, your pay is a really hard thing to do because it goes to a huge sense of worth, how much are you worth compared to somebody else. And it's risky sometimes in an organisation to do that. I have always had a belief that you just do stuff right? So you just get on and start doing stuff and you do it with other people so that you have a body of support around you. You've got other people's ideas into whatever you think is a good idea. So your idea gets better because they add to it. Um, So it's like a building a coalition of the willing as you move forward in a job or as you want to put something new on the table. I think you have to be operating like that and being visible operating like that before it's easier to have a conversation about money, um, if that makes sense. And I, I think women who've got supportive bosses have a great opportunity to have a conversation, not just about money, but about their performance, their contribution and their future at the same time. So it's hard to make suggestions. <laughs> it's hard to give any advice other than you know, don't always focus on the money. The money is really important, absolutely, but it's all in the timing. And sometimes the timing is right because you've done something fabulous, if that makes sense. The other thing is confidence that, you know, knowing your monetary worth, there is no harm in deciding not to stay somewhere if you don't think that you're getting adequately reimbursed. You can always come back later. So that's the other thing I would encourage women to do is to think about rather than a stepladder career where you go up in an organisation is that you zigzag in and out of organisations, particularly early on. It's easy to kind of zigzag between the private sector, the public sector and take on different things. And each time, you know, you use it as an opportunity to 
uh, have a discussion uh, about how much you're worth. And then the more you do it, the more confident you are clearly to have that discussion. That's great advice, Jill. And I just want to say thank you so much for sharing your views on that. My next question is one of my favourites, and it's about how you plan your career. So do you have a five or 10 year plan or do you prefer to take the opportunities as they come? I have had a mixture, I I guess, uh, uh, which I think everybody does. So when I was younger, I think I was always open to opportunities coming my way. And what I really tried to focus on was following the work. So following the work that was interesting, that I could add value to, and often without kind of articulating it that well uh, in the early days, is where there is something to be fixed, you know, where there's a reform agenda to sniff out and and fix things, which is why a lot of the work I've ended up doing is setting up new things or getting them going or changing direction for something. So I've kind of followed the work with a logic of where do things need to be better, I guess, but opportunistically, you know, just using what you've done to be available and ready to do the next thing, I guess, which is when I'm coaching or mentoring uh, young women, I always say to them, what you do now is what gets you your next job. And it's not not like using anybody. It's actually just bringing your skills to the fore so that they're visible, so that when someone looks at you for another role, they see that you're already doing it, that, you know, the gap between having to step up is much less uh, less large, I guess it's a smaller step if you, if people can see that you're already doing a fair bit of it. Uh, and it gives people confidence and it means your skills are really, uh, really, really well defined and you can basically step into a role and get, get moving on it. So that opportunity stuff um, is certainly what I did a lot more when I was younger. Now I focus much more on who I want to work with, which is hand in hand with the work. So it's not only what is the work, it's what is the work and who are the people. Because the one thing you learn being in this game for a long time is, you know, you've got to work with people that you enjoy working with. It doesn't mean you like all of them, but enjoy, you know, either robustness or intellect or, uh, you know, opportunity for change. Because I have a belief that things only change because two people look at each other and go, let's do this. So that's more important now uh, than ever before. I think, is that the people connection with who you work with makes work a whole lot more fun and also makes you much more effective and efficient in being able to deliver uh, reform or change. So I don't ever think I've had a five-year plan. I think earlier in my career when I was being opportunistic, I probably had a 10-year plan, which was like I want to do a job like that. Yeah, so I think for me it's kind of a mixture of opportunism long-term and now just let me work with some great people. It's really interesting to hear that and it really does come back to the people, doesn't it? You need to be happy when you go to work and the people you work with also need to be driven to make change. I have one more question. It's the question we always finish with, Jill. And it is, what is your top piece of advice for early career female transport professionals? Uh, Look, uh, preface this by saying transport is complex, big, hairy, scary, fun, slightly terrifying because of its impact. You know, it's a big, chunky system sector that people keep coming back to. So, So many people that I've worked with leave transport but come back to it and they come back to it because it's 
intellectually challenging. It's a big system that requires a whole lot of things done to it. And it affects the lives of every single person nearly every day. So that's why it's an attractive uh, sector for a career for women. I would give two pieces of advice. One, and they might be the same advice. One, one is get involved, you know, get involved in stuff. So you do a job, you try and do more in that job, you participate in things, uh, you put up your hand for things. It's easy to say, but harder to do. I know that because people are pretty time constrained. But try and give everything a go because giving everything a go gives you access to amazing people. The other bit of advice, and I think I talked about this a little bit earlier, is lean into people that you can set up support relationships with. So lean into older women, lean into colleagues who know more about something than you do, just lean in so that you've got, you know, a, a network around you of people uh, who can help move you up through a system but who can be there when it all goes, you know, belly up every so often, which it does um, for everybody. Jill, thank you so much. That is awesome advice and I really appreciate you sharing that with our listeners. We are out of time for today but I just want to say, Jill, thank you so much. It's been lovely chatting to you and hearing about the work you're doing and how you've built such a meaningful career. So thank you so much for your time and insights and goodbye. And thank you, Michelle. That's been terrific fun. Enjoyed catching up with you again. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was Dr. Gillian Miles, the Chief Executive Officer of Australia's National Transport Commission. I'm your host, Michelle Batsis. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Women Who Move Nations, the public transport podcast. I hope you'll tune in again soon. Thank you for listening to Women Who Move Nations, the public transport podcast. This series is produced by Dylan Adler with copywriting by Sophia Dickinson. Thanks for joining us as we profile women working in public transport and sustainable mobility and inspire the next generation of female leaders. I'm Michelle Batsis. Keep safe and keep our nations moving.